And we'll pray before we read. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is powerful and it always does something. Uh, we pray that now as we read it and as Carl preaches that we will be challenged, changed, transformed uh, more into the likeness of Jesus. Help us to have a greater appreciation for the gospel an appreciation that actually uh, is outworked in the way that we live our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would apply the gospel to our hearts, to our minds, um, and help us to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Matthew 26 from verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said... I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You are also with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. 
Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Thanks, Nathan. I was just going to say, uh, before we get into the, the sermon, with the, uh, with the branching out magazines on the table, um, if you've never done it before, don't be afraid. Uh, last time I did it, it only, I think it only took me on my own 45 minutes. Uh, so if you go with your family straight after church and do it, I reckon you could get it done in about 20 minutes. I reckon. Pretty easy. So if you've never done it before, give it a go. Uh, it'd be a great help uh, to, f- if you could do that. Well, uh, you might not realise it, but uh, we're almost at the end of Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew. There's only a couple more weeks to go, and we've been going on this series in Matthew on and off since Christmas Day. 
2011. Well, that's a long time. Uh, I hope you've survived it. Uh, I hope you found it as helpful as I have. Uh, But all the way through, as we've gone through Matthew, there's been this constant theme of uh, God, through Matthew, challenging us with the claims of Jesus. Jesus claims to be the Son of God, Jesus uh, as the Messiah, Jesus as the Saviour of the world. And all the way through the book of Matthew, we've seen these vignettes, these uh, vistas, these, these pictures these portraits of people uh, and the way that they've responded to Jesus. And in this last couple of chapters before Jesus' crucifixion, those responses to Jesus reach their climax. They become, if you like, the most hostile, perhaps the most open, perhaps more than, more than hostile, perhaps open is the best way to describe it. People's deep feelings about Christ are exposed for the first time in the clearest way. And in these uh, verses that uh, Nathan read for us just before, we have, if you like, five scenes, five groups of people who respond to Jesus in five different ways. Uh, In the first scene, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a kind of high court for the Jewish people of Jesus' day. So so the Jews had some kind of autonomy from the the Romans and, and this is where they did a lot of their... Uh, business. We're told in verse 59 that the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward, two uh, who uh, had false witness against Jesus. The chief priests, the elders, the people were trying to skew the case against Jesus. Uh, They weren't doing a very good job, it seems. They had many false witnesses and none of the false witnesses until the last two had been uh, competent enough to uh, bring a conviction against Jesus. Perhaps their claims were too outlandish for people to believe, I don't know. But finally these, these last two come and they accuse Jesus saying, I'm going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Jesus had never in fact quite said that. Uh, If you look in John chapter 2, what Jesus says is, you will destroy the temple, you destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the temple that he was talking about was not the physical temple sitting in Jerusalem on the mountain that they would destroy, but the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, the temple, if you like, was the meeting place between God and man. And Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate meeting place between God and man, and you will destroy me, and I will rebuild This temple, myself, I'll be raised to life in three days. But these false witnesses come before the Sanhedrin and twist Jesus' words to mean something completely different, to say something completely untrue. If that's not enough, the high priest uh, goes further and and he solemnly charges Jesus to tell the people if he is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says that he is, and he, and he picks up uh, these words, these Old Testament imagery of the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds. Jesus replies with the truth. And the response of the high priest is to tear his clothes and to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Normally the purpose of a court is to examine the truth of someone's claim. Normally the purpose of a court sitting is to work out what's right and what isn't right. 
Is that true? Is that really true? Someone, someone here is saying this. Is that right or is that wrong? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus the new temple, the meeting place between God and man? But this court on this day didn't gather to find out and to establish the truth. It met to foster lies to perpetuate what they already believed Jesus to be, to perpetuate their hatred. Matthew in his gospel gives us the evidence for why he believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But the chief priest just has to hear Jesus' claim and he's tearing his clothes and he's ready to execute Jesus. He's not interested in weighing the evidence. Well, what evidence might there be, Jesus, that that's the truth? What evidence might there be that that's not the truth? He's not interested in that because he's already made up his mind that Jesus' claim is not true. What the Sanhedrin and the false witnesses of that day did to Jesus is exactly the same way that many people treat Jesus' claims today. People still make up lies, half-truths, falsifications in order to justify not believing in the truth. Sometimes they're out-and-out lies, uh, like the lie that Jesus never lived. Uh, I don't think there's any respectable historian who would advocate that, but the myth still does the rounds. Uh, Or perhaps there's the lie made famous by Dan Brown, uh, that Jesus never died, but married Mary Magdalene and lived to a ripe old age. I used to work with a guy, actually. uh, His name was Dan Brown, and he used to have the book sitting on top of his desk. (laughs) Yes, anyway. Sometimes sometimes the lies that people tell about Christ are out-and-out lies like that. More often, though, they're half-truths, claims which kind of have the ring of truth but are nonetheless untrue. So... For instance, the lie that Jesus was just a great teacher. But even non-Christian writers from around the time of Jesus write about Jesus doing miraculous deeds, extraordinary deeds. Or perhaps the lie of the social gospel from the last century. The lie that Jesus came not to bring forgiveness for sin, but that he came with a social reform agenda to lift people out of poverty. Undoubtedly, Jesus, when he returns, will lift people out of poverty, but that is anchored in Jesus reconciling us to God and doing away with the power of sin. Or maybe the lie of people like Rob Bell, uh, who say that there's no such thing as rejecting Jesus really, because in the end, love wins. Which flies in the face, of course, of everything which happens in these chapters. There are people who reject Jesus and who pay the price for it. You see, like the Sanhedrin, some people today still respond to Jesus by constructing false evidence to discredit Jesus and to justify their own pre-existing beliefs. So that's the first scene. In the second scene, we come across Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, and he's sitting in the courtyard near where the trial is taking place, and a servant girl comes to him and she recognises Peter as one of Jesus' disciples, and she... uh, you know, begins to quiz him about that. 
Uh, but Peter denies it. She insists. He denies it again. Someone else comes along and says, now I'm pretty sure that your accent gives you away as one of the people who, who's from Galilee. At which point Jesus is, uh, Peter is so terrified of being associated with Jesus or connected with Jesus in any way that he begins to call down curses on himself. I don't know the man, he says. He swears that he doesn't know him. The fear of being associated with Jesus wasn't the shape of Peter's life later on, but here on this night, here on this night before the cross, Peter was terrified of being associated with Jesus in any way. There's a chilling moment in John's Gospel uh, where John writes, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. There were people who believed in Jesus, many even among the leaders of the day. But they were so afraid of what it might cost them that they didn't profess Jesus publicly. You see, if one response to Jesus is to be like the Sanhedrin and to make up lies to justify our belief, another response is to be terrified of being associated with Jesus. Not to disbelieve him, but actually to believe him, but be so afraid that we never admit to it. It's not that people stop believing in Jesus, but they stop being willing to be identified with him. So the moment may come where you need to choose between your job and Jesus. Or between a relationship and Jesus. And it might seem at that moment more convenient to suppress Christ and to keep your job. Or to suppress Christ and to keep your relationship. For some Christians the choice is between Christ and their life. They can confess Jesus and die or they can deny Jesus and live. And actually every day I think we're faced with those same choices. Not to die, but the choice to just hide Jesus away in the cupboard. Jesus warns us in Mark chapter 8, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Well, on that night, Peter chose to deny Jesus and to keep his life, and it was a terrible mistake. But it wasn't an irreversible mistake. And on the other side of the cross, Peter repented, and Jesus forgave him. And on the other side of the cross, Peter was a man in Acts, who was bold in confessing Jesus as Christ. Peter, on that night, made a terrible mistake. But because of the cross, even for that mistake, he found forgiveness and grace from God. Well, in the third scene, we find a kind of counterpoint to the story of Peter. We find Jesus, uh, Judas sorry, seized with remorse for what he's done in betraying Jesus. 
Uh, when Je- Judas sees that Jesus is going to be executed, he returns to the chief priests and the elders and he hands back the 30 silver coins that he was paid to betray Jesus. So Judas recognises his sin. At one level, in verse 4, he says, I've sinned because I have betrayed innocent blood. And the priests and the elders basically reply, well, what do we care? Do, you know, deal with it yourself. It's not our responsibility. It's your fault. You've done it. And so Jesus, uh, Judas does deal with it by going out and hanging himself. The account of Judas is, for Matthew, a perfect foil for the account of Peter. In both cases, there's rejection, followed by remorse. Peter denies Jesus, the rooster crows, he weeps. Judas betrays Jesus, he hears that Jesus is going to be executed, he weeps and tries to take back the money. In both cases, there is rejection followed by remorse, but in Peter's case, there's repentance and trust in Jesus and restoration, but in Judas' case, there's no trust in Jesus. There's just his own efforts to kind of undo what he's done by handing the money back. Peter sinned against Jesus but found grace by returning. Judas found only despair by continuing to deny who Jesus was. He doesn't say, my goodness, I've made a mistake, Jesus is the Christ. He says, my goodness, I've made a mistake, I've betrayed innocent blood. Peter found remorse and forgiveness. Judas found remorse and guilt. Because Judas had abandoned the one person who could actually deal with his sin. The one person who could actually deal with his past. And the end result of that, the end result of that disaster was that he took his own life. Suicide is always a difficult and a traumatic subject. And many of us, I would suspect, have been scarred in one way or another by uh, the reality of suicide. The reasons that people feel unable to continue in life are many and varied. But the account of Judas, I think, reminds us of the reality that a great deal uh, of people feel unable to continue in life because they feel unable to deal with the past. Their own past, their own self haunts them and weighs them down and crushes them and saps their joy and their hope. And even the smallest thing in that situation, even the smallest thing in the past, a misspoken word, can be, if you like, the straw that breaks the camel's back. But the wonder of the cross is that Jesus deals with our past Jesus nails our past to the cross and brings it to an end. He buries it in the depths of the sea. Every, every offence, from the smallest offence, from a, a misspoken word to whatever it might be that, that scars our lives, a broken marriage, a, a, an apparently unbreakable addiction, whatever it might be, all those things can be dealt with. Judas betrayed and rejected the one person who could deal with his past. You might have betrayed Jesus and rejected 
Jesus. But the majesty of the cross is that the cross is so powerful and the love of God is so unbounded that God can forgive us even when we reject, have rejected him and betrayed him. Please don't ever think uh, that your past is too heavy a burden for the future. If you're a person prone to be weighed down by the past, then please write uh, on a piece of paper, please write this on a piece of paper and pray it every day for the rest of your life. Thank you, Father, that the power of Jesus' death is greater than the sum of all my sin. You see, it's the, our inability to believe that and appropriate that so often which saps our joy and our hope. And for some people, that weight can prove too much. Some people respond to Jesus by making up lies to discredit him. Some people respond to Jesus by being too afraid to be connected with him. And other people respond to Jesus by rejecting the free offer of grace and mercy in the cross, as Judas did. In the fourth scene, then, we find Pilate the governor. He was the governor appointed by Rome to rule over Jerusalem and all it surrounds. Uh, And the Jews come to Pilate because they are unable to execute Jesus uh, of their own accord. They need the Romans to rubber stamp that decision. And so they come to Pilate. Uh, You might notice that they've changed their accusation. Before it was blasphemy, now they accuse Jesus of being the king of the Jews. They do that because uh, for anyone except Caesar to claim to be a king was a great crime against the empire. And so they come to Pilate and accuse Jesus of that. But Pilate is not ignorant of what the Jews are trying to do. We're told in verse 18 that Pilate knew that the Jews had only handed Jesus over out of envy. What's more, Mrs. Pilate uh, had a dream which caused her to send a note to her husband uh, and say, don't have anything to do with this guy. He's an innocent man. I've, I've had lots of trouble in my dreams about this guy. Don't, just, just do not deal with it. Don't have anything to do with it. So Pilate tries to release Jesus uh, and even in verse 23 he says, what crime has, has this man committed? He's not ignorant of what's going on. But the pressure from the crowd and the risk of a riot uh, is too much for him. And so in one of the greatest acts of cowardice uh, ever exhibited by a judicial officer, uh, we read in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, uh, but instead an an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. (laughs) Well, if only it was that easy. Imagine, imagine, imagine sitting in court. I had some friends who were in court, would you believe, for 15 years, I think it was. 15 years in the Supreme Court. Imagine getting to the end of that and the judge standing up and going, well, I'm washing my hands. That's, you know, it's just too hard. You know, just sort it out yourselves. It would be a complete abdication of his responsibility. And yet, don't we all wish that we could just wash our hands and sit on the fence? 
Some people respond to Jesus by making up lies to discredit him. Some people respond by being too afraid. Others reject the free offer of the uh, offer of grace and mercy in the cross. But others, like Pilate, just try to avoid having to make a call. Let me tell you about Jesus. No, look, it's too hard. I, I don't. I don't want to have to make a call on that. It's such an attractive option. Isn't it? It's so middle of the road. It's so. Western, just to not have to decide to do anything, just to be grey and indecisive. It seems so accepting, doesn't it, to not decide. I'll, people think to themselves, well, I'll just avoid rejecting Jesus and that will be enough. He might be right. Who knows? That was the response that some people made in the Holocaust as well. Well, there's no point picking up, uh, you know, there's no, point, no point making a fuss. I just won't kill anyone. But if they go and do that, that'll be fine. I just, I, I won't get involved. But as Bonhoeffer said, actually, to, to not to act, not to act is to act. Not to decide is to decide. It's to choose to remain ignorant. And so it is with Jesus. It's impossible for us to say, well, I just wash my hands, I won't decide about Jesus. Not to decide is to decide. It's to decide that Jesus is a charlatan. It's to decide to meet God on our own terms rather than on his terms. Through grace, the grace available in the death of Christ. Pilate thought that he could remain neutral and he was entirely self-deceived. And some of us perhaps think that we can do the same. Well, in the last scene uh, before Jesus' crucifixion, we find Jesus surrounded by Pilate's guards. He's finally been handed over for execution and the whole company of soldiers are gathered around him and they strip Jesus they put a scarlet robe on him, scarlet being the colour of royalty. It was a kind of perverse joke. They crown him with a crown of thorns. They give him a mock scepter. They kneel before him and they cry out, Hail the King of the Jews! If only they knew. People, uh, some people respond to Jesus by making up lies to discredit him. Some people respond to Jesus by being too afraid to be connected with him. Others respond by rejecting the free offer of grace. Others respond like Pilate and avoid having to make a call. But finally, some like the guards just mock. Mocking is the lowest form of wit. It's the lowest form of intellectual engagement. It's the opposite of thoughtful and careful examination. It's so much easier, isn't it, to mock than to think, think deeply. Come up against a difficult argument, you mock it rather than engage with it. Mocking is so easy and it's so powerful. The best way to destroy an idea is to mock it. That's what politicians do. Uh, people do it all the time in the media. The idea might be perfectly reasonable if you think about it, but all you have to do is to mock it. Uh, Jesus is the son of God. What a stupid idea that is. And everyone goes, oh yes, what, is, well, what, is, what a silly idea. And an idiot would think that. The strange thing is that it's so persuasive. 
Some comedians do it all the time. And in doing that, they shape our vision of what's sensible and what's not sensible. And they've never offered an argument. They've just mocked the idea. And we go, oh, yes, it's, oh, it's very silly. Who would think that? People respond to Jesus in lots of different ways. We've seen five different ways that these people responded to Jesus before his crucifixion. Your response to Jesus could be any of those, I don't know. But it's worth remembering, I think, that just because your response to Jesus has been one of these ways, your future doesn't need to be defined by the past. It's interesting to note that after Jesus dies, one of the centurions and the others with him guarding Jesus exclaim, surely he was the son of God. I wonder if they were the same soldiers who'd beaten him and persecuted him. Makes sense to think that maybe some of them were. The same people who'd mocked him when he died said, crumbs, surely this man was the son of God. It's not unthinkable because the grace of God available in the cross is so large and so comprehensive that it can bring forgiveness even for a soldier who's beaten and mocked the Son of God. You see, that's the point of the cross, isn't it? The reason Jesus went to the cross is so that our past might be buried in the depths of the sea. So that Peter's denial might not be the measure of his future. And so that our denial might, be, might not be the measure of our future either. You see, we think that the sin that needs to be atoned for in the cross is our little white lies or our unkind words. But actually the great sin that needs to be atoned for in the cross is our fundamental rejection of God and our rejection of Jesus Christ. See, all of us apart from Christ, all of us apart from faith in Christ are like all these people, mocking, coming up with lies and falsifications so that we don't need to believe in God, too afraid to confess Christ in public. And sometimes God opens our eyes so that we see the horror of what it is that we've done. Rejected, denied, opposed the very person who can atone for our sin. But that's the point of the cross. So that we can find forgiveness, not just for an innocent past, but for a past of rejecting and denying the God who loved us and who died for us. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the death of Jesus Christ. We thank you that that most awful moment in all of human history is also the most glorious. And Lord, as we look at the ways that these people responded to Jesus, even Peter one of his own disciples. Lord, we're only too aware of our own failings, our own rejection of you, 
our own denial, our own betrayal, our own mocking, our own fear. And so, Lord, we come not with any great words or any great recommendations, but we come simply with empty hands and plead for your mercy in Jesus Christ, that you would not cut us off and reject us forever simply because Jesus Christ was cut off and rejected in our place. Father, we ask that you would forgive us and reconcile us to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, enable each one of us to cling to that, for we ask it in his name. Amen.